Tonight we move on to Zechariah chapter 2, which contains the first, or the third vision, rather, the first chapter, having visions 1 and 2. And the subject, the, the vision tonight, and the subject of our sermon actually picks up from a promise given in chapter 1, verse 16. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I am returning to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built, and it says the Lord of hosts, and a surveyor's line shall be stretched over Jerusalem. So with that in mind, we read an end from Zechariah chapter 2. It's a rather brief chapter. Then I raised my eyes and looked, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. So I said, where are you going? And he said to me, to measure Jerusalem, to see what is its width and its length. And there was the angel who talked with me going out, and another angel was coming out to meet him. He said to him, Run, speak to this young man, saying, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as towns without walls because of the multitude of men and livestock in it. For I, says the Lord, will be a wall of fire all around her, and I will be the glory in her midst. Up, up, flee from the land of the north, says the Lord, for I have spread you abroad like the four winds of heaven, says the Lord. Up, Zion, escape you who dwell with the daughter of Babylon. For thus says the Lord of hosts, he sent me after glory to the nations which plunder you, for he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. For surely I will shake my hand against them, and they shall become spoil for their servants. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I am coming, and I will dwell in your midst, says the Lord. Many nations shall be joined to the Lord in that day, and they shall become my people, and I will dwell in your midst, then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And the Lord will take possession of Judah as his inheritance in the Holy Land, and will again choose Jerusalem. Be silent all flesh before the Lord, for he is aroused from his holy habitation. May God add his blessing to that reading of his word. And so we see then that what was promised in uh, chapter 1 is actually very quickly fulfilled in chapter 2 as we have this image of the surveyor's line. And the picture is sort of like this. What is, you know, what is the significance of the surveyor's line? Well, the, the situation is, is this, that even, well, Jerusalem had been destroyed, utterly destroyed, burned with fire. Um, the, the Babylonians came with great... Uh, zeal for its destruction and the, 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 after its destruction of course the people were taken away and even now 70 years later uh, as some people have returned it's, it's still in ruins largely some of it has been rebuilt but most of it looks like a ruin and it's sparsely populated there aren't, we, we remember that in, in Nehemiah and Ezra well that's one of the problems there aren't enough people there and this is roughly speaking the same uh, time timeline, not much different from that. And what we have then is in this midst is ruins, uh, rubble everywhere, that a picture of a surveyor's line. And what significance does that have? Well, what significance does it have now when we, if we see men out there with their surveying equipment? What's the significance? Something's about to get built, right? Somebody cares about this piece of property. Somebody cares enough to survey it, and somebody cares because they're probably going to rebuild it, build it, or, or enlarge it, uh, one of the three. And in this case, the Lord is saying, in fact, all of those things apply. He is going to build it. Of course, he's rebuilding it, but he's building it better than ever, and he's making it bigger. 
And the surveyor's line, the appearance of their surveyor's line in the hand of the angel is a down payment that soon enough this good blessing for Jerusalem was going to happen. Somebody cared about the city and had big plans for it. And that someone is the Lord himself. Now, that image which sort of dominates the chapter is just part of the larger picture, which is that the Lord is letting his people know that he is concerned for them. And the reason why he's concerned for them is because he's concerned for his own inheritance. And I think that's really important for us to see. He's not merely taking pity on the people as he would take momentary mercy, momentary pity on a people that he otherwise has no ongoing contact or concern with. No, he is blessing his own inheritance. He, is, he has a vested interest in these people, and he is pouring himself and his resources into them because he does not intend to give them up. He does not intend to only have a momentary relationship with them, but rather Jerusalem is his own treasured possession. And I should say, incidentally, that the word inheritance, that it is here, it's, it's actually the title of the sermon, The Lord's Concern for His Inheritance, is probably, arguably better translated as portion or share or part. It's not a particularly easy word to translate in just one English word, but Deuteronomy chapter 10, which you probably remember, gives you uh, the sense. Deuteronomy 10 verse 9, Therefore Levi has no portion nor inheritance with his brethren, the Lord is his inheritance, just as the Lord your God promised him. You see how that goes? Because it's talking about literally, um, well, as all the, other nation, all the other tribes of Israel had a physical inheritance in the land, they actually did survey that land and they divided it up by lot and each one of those tribes had their own inheritance. But there was an exception. The tribe of Levi did not have a physical land inheritance. They didn't have that um, inheritance. Rather, the Lord himself was to be that inheritance. And you could rather say the Lord was their portion. It was their good thing, their treasure, the thing that they were going to have forever. Well, that's the way the Lord speaks about Jerusalem. To the Levites, if their portion is the Lord, the Lord says, well, guess what? My portion is you, the people of God, the, the, the heavenly Jerusalem, the eternal Zion that has been his project since the very beginning up until now and, and will be until the end. And that's his inheritance. That's his investment, perhaps, we might say today. In the sense of a house you're paying on or an annuity you're paying into. Why are you doing that? What, what, is, what, is, the, the way that, what is your attitude towards this, your great investment? Well, I suppose you keep track of it. You keep tabs on it. You monitor it. You, you make sure it's okay. You protect it. You take means to protect it. It uh, seems like everyone has an alarm on their house. Why? Because you're protecting your investment. Seem, and when, when the, the roof leaks, you fix it because you're protecting your investment. And you do that because you, event, you expect eventually to take full possession of this. You might be paying on it on the, mo on the moment. Kind of the bank owns it more than you do. But you do expect to take full possession of it one day, and therefore you take good care of it. And that's precisely what the Lord says is his situation towards us, towards his people. We are his portion. We are his investment. We are his inheritance. And therefore he keeps track of us. He, keep, he protects us. And he will, he says, eventually take full possession of us as his treasure. So the 
title again tonight is The Lord's Concern for His Inheritance. These three points. One, he, he measures. Two, he protects. And three, he will take possession. He measures, he protects, he will take possession. So first he measures. Started in verse 1. Then I raised my eyes and looked, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. So I said, where are you going? And he said to me, to measure Jerusalem, to see what is, what is its width and what is its length. And there was the angel who talked with me going out, and another angel was coming out to meet him. Now, this is very, very similar to two other passages in, in Scripture, to the ones in Ezekiel and Revelation, which also have to do with measuring Jerusalem. Remarkably similar, really. And I guess you would take... Uh, two points on that. You would say that this similarity says that this is something important. The Lord is emphasizing this when he says it more than once in these different books of Scripture. But also, are there any differences at all to take account of? And I suppose that there is in that there's a different character actually doing the, the, the physical measuring in them. In our chapter, it's an angel who's doing it. Um, the Lord, it's not that the Lord has distanced himself from it, but he has sent his angel to do so. In Revelation 11.1, 1, you remember that? Then I was, I was given a reed like a measuring rod, and the angel stood saying, Rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. And here John, the apostle John, is the one measuring. And then in Ezekiel, it's Christ himself apparently is measuring. Ezekiel 40, verse 3, He took me there, and behold, there was a man whose appearance was like the appearance of bronze. He had a line of flax and a measuring rod in his hand, and he stood in the gateway. And I I think this is probably Christ himself. And notice the way, by the way, in that Ezekiel passage, the way he defines the space that he's measuring out with his rod. How does he define it? What is his attitude towards it? He says to me, son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet where I will dwell in the midst of the children of Israel forever. He is measuring out his own house where he plans to live. Now, we know from Revelation 21, there is no physical temple in heaven. I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. So we're not talking about a physical building. What we are talking about is his great project, the great building, the temple, the house which he has been building, the, the one mentioned in Revelation 3 where it says, I'm going to, I'm going to make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Or in Ephesians 2, in whom the whole building being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Or 2 Corinthians 6, even most explicitly, where it says, you are the temple of the living God. As as God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. And it's very clear, isn't it? That we are the temple, we are the building, we are the dwelling place that God has been working on, and we are the ones that are being surveyed, the people of God. Now, why is he measuring the church? What is the purpose of this exercise? Well, I suppose it's the same reason we have so many things in prophetic scripture that that measure or enumerate things, you know, like Revelation 7, 12,000 this tribe, 12,000 the other tribe, 12,000, 12,000. It's all very repetitious, but it's all very specific. 
and reminds us that God knows the precise number of his people. Or in Ezekiel 40 and 40 through 48, every part of the temple, every room, every furnished, every furnishing is precisely measured, very, very tedious to read, in fact, as you're reading through it. What is the, what is the, the point of all that? The message is that you don't care more, you don't know more about your house than God. I mean, most of us probably know how many rooms we have. Some of us probably know how many square feet we have. Some of us know the lay of our land relative to our neighbors and all the rest of it. When you're looking at a house, you, you, you know, care about all those sort of things. And God is not less than that. He's not less concerned than you or I are on these things. He's more concerned. He knows it more precisely. He knows us inside and out perfectly. Every last part is accounted for and known. Well, again, what is the point? It's being measured so that we know. God doesn't need to do this, by the way. He doesn't need to go through this exercise. He's omniscient. He knows these things. But he is demonstrating this in order that we might know that we are accounted for and under his sovereign care. Right? That's an important thing for us to know. We count. We matter to him. Measuring and counting are what you do for things that you care about. And to borrow from a previous sermon on this topic... Uh, banks, there's a bank over there. You know what they count? Money. And they keep good track of it. They pay people a lot of, 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 a lot of their, uh, their staffing goes to making sure somebody's counting money. They, that's what they do. They count money. Uh, stores probably count the things that are on their shelves. Sometimes they take inventory. We, people, everybody is keeping track of something that is important to them. What does Christ account? What does Christ count up and keep track of? His sheep. That's, that's what's precious to him. He counts his sheep. Well, Christ indeed has us all accounted for, and there is no exception to that whatsoever. John ten twenty eight says, I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. And you say, wait a minute, how does he even know? He's got so many sheep in his hand. Well, if one or two slip out, how does he know? Maybe that's just a rounding error like it is at the bank over there, and, and it will never be missed. But no, no, he says in verse 29, My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. So that's impossible. But also that my Father who has given them to me. And we know that there's going to be an accounting. There is going to be an accounting, and he's going to render back. He's going to say, not one was lost. That's what he goes on to say, isn't it? And Father, not one of them was lost except the son of perdition. And, of course, he was never among that, that actual number anyhow. And he's going to be able to say that on the final day. He will not have lost account. He will not be a worse leader than I or any other decent military officer, the most basic requirement of which was simply to keep account of those who were entrusted into our care. He knows the number. He keeps track of us, and he will keep us. He has perfect accountability of his sheep. And again, I would say that things go a little bit further than simply accountability in a general sense. There's a name and there's a body and we know that much and we keep track of it. But you see, you remember it is a, a, a measuring line, it is an accounting, it is a looking at these things, but it is a measuring out of his own habitation, a measuring out of his own people, and a little bit more than that, because the church is, of course, the body of Christ. And again, as I've probably mentioned in the past, knowing someone's measurements is something that's very intimate. 
you probably know your own measurement, right? Because you know yourself, and you have access to that information. You are uh, concerned about your, your own self, and you have this intimate knowledge of yourself, and you may have that knowledge about a very few other people. If you're married, more than likely that's the only one you really know the, the measurements to, your own spouse. And not everyone has access to that information. There aren't that many people that know Pam's measurements. I happen to know them. Um, and that is privileged information. That is intimate information. And I want you to know that that's the kind of information that Christ has about his bride, you see. We are the bride of Christ, and therefore he has a right and he has a privilege to know our measurements. He has an intimate concern for us. He is that close to us that he knows the measurements of his bride. And then, as you're probably guessing that I'd say, he doesn't just know it because it's his bride. He knows it because, well, we are the body of Christ. He knows the measurements of his church because he knows himself. And inasmuch as we are the body of Christ, then... He knows our measurements. Now, all of this is a reminder to us that the great concern of God is his own people, what is being measured, what is being kept in that heavenly account book, what is being preserved, what is being zealously guarded and protected is his own people. So he counts us, he accounts us, and secondly, he protects. It says in verse 4, Run, speak to this young man, saying, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as towns without walls because of the multitude of men and livestock in it. And I, I think it, when it says, speak to this young man, it's speaking to Zechariah and possibly indicating he was young at this point in his uh, career as a prophet. In verse 5, For I, says the Lord, will be a wall of fire all around her, and I will be the glory in her midst. Well, what is a city without walls? We don't normally have walls in cities anymore. Uh, we have remnants of them. And I guess it's useful for us to even to consider that. We consider the town of Newcastle and its original borders, its original wall that protected it. Um, you have, why, why would you want a city without walls? Well, if you look at the original plan of the city and how far that wall went, one of the great advantages is you can expand. It's very hard for a walled city to keep, uh, to keep pace if it's growing because, of course, there's only so big that you can get. So from a space standpoint, you can continually push out the boundaries as the people grow without constantly having to build new walls. But the security is the issue, isn't it? Because that would be the standoff, if, uh, the, the trade-off. If you then go out as a city without walls and you can build as big as you want, that's great, except you're kind of defenseless. That's the problem. And so how is that possible? How is it going to be possible? It's a good thing for them to be like a city without walls because that means the Lord is blessing them and building them up. But how is it going to be possible from a security standpoint? Well, there's two possibilities. Either you're living in such a safe place that there's no threat or, um, uh, you know, well, I'll, I'll just mention that, of course. Um, there, there are, I guess, such places, but it, I don't think that occurred much in um, the ancient Near East and as we're thinking about the situation of the word of God and this, that probably wasn't the thing that was mostly in mind. Or the other possibility that you could have a city without walls is because of who is in the city. And here I just draw it 
a parallel, or I guess an illustration came to my mind of a place we stayed uh, in our trip in America. We stayed out in the country in South Carolina, and um, the, the door was left unlocked. And that was not a crazy, crazy notion um, because the man we stayed with was 6'5 or larger, and he and his boys had about a dozen firearms, some of which I would have been glad to have had in the Marine Corps. And it would have been a foolish, foolish robber indeed to come to that house, as with most of rural South Carolina. Um, so they, they did not need to lock up that house at night or during the day. They left the, do- the door unlocked, and we slept fine. We were not, we were not in, in anxiety about it. And in Zechariah 2, which one is the case? Well, I, I think it is the latter. The reason that is given for why this can be a city without a wall is because I, says the Lord, will be a wall of fire all around her. You see how that is? It's not that the Lord is simply installing some sort of external security system. It's not just that he he has put an alarm on the house. He's saying, I myself will stand guard over it. I will be a wall of fire protecting my own people. That's a beautiful picture. I'd say, by the way, it helps us to understand uh, the reconciliation of what seem, so many people seem to have a problem reconciling uh, the God of love whom they, they think they know with this one that they read about that might send people to hell and pour out his wrath upon them and want to say things like that hell is the mere absence of God or something like that. But actually what we see in this one verse is one holy God, and he is at the very same time... Notice it, at the very same time, the source of light and glory for his people, I will be the glory in her midst, and also a threatening, vengeful fire to the rebels who seek to do them harm. He is both of those things at the exact same time. The difference is your relationship to him. To one, he is a source of light and of glory and of goodness, and the other, he is a source of fiery wrath. That is indeed the definition of heaven and hell. Well, the Lord explains, he gives a rationale for his protectiveness, doesn't he? In verse 8, For thus says the Lord of hosts, He sent me after glory to the nations which plunder you, for he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. That's why he cares. That's the reason why he's a wall of fire around them. He's not going to let them... No, he has to say that. You, you understand, because he did let... Babylon touched the apple of his eye. He turned down the fire and let them come in. And he has to reassure the people that he's not intending that to happen again. He is receiving them back. He is building them up again. He had his purposes for the time in in disciplining his people. And so he's saying, no, you are indeed the apple of my eye. And he who touches you is not going to be um, let off easily. You know that phrase, by the way, the, the apple of his eye, that the Lord, I think, is intentionally reminding us, recalling us to Deuteronomy uh, chapter 32 and verse 9 through 11. For the Lord's portion, there's that word, same word, inheritance, portion. The Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is a place of his inheritance. He found him in the desert land and in the wasteland, a howling wilderness. He encircled him. He instructed him. He kept him as the apple of his eye. As an eagle stirs up its nest, hovers over its young, spreading out its wings, taking them up, carrying them on its wings. This is the Lord's picture. 
reason why he's going to protect us is that we are the apple of his eye. He pictures himself as an eagle hovering over its young, protecting them, keeping them, carrying them. He is telling us we're his portion. We're his treasured possession, and he will certainly protect us. We are safe in his hands. Thirdly and finally, he says that he will take possession of his inheritance. Verse 12, And the Lord will take possession of Judah as his inheritance in the Holy Land and will again choose Jerusalem. Now, we see that the Lord is doing this work of preparation. He is doing this work of building. He is doing this work of keeping track of the status of this annuity in charting out plans uh, for the future in his this surveying line, line and, and doing this work of jealously protecting from all who might cause them harm. But that's not going to go on forever. There's a point to it. There will eventually be a consummation of this. The Lord says he will take possession of his inheritance. It will not always be out there that he is simply protecting and building and, and working on and expanding that's the church, isn't it? That's his work. He does protect and bless and expand his church, and it continues to grow over time. And some of us, indeed, are there in the, safety, the safe deposit box of heaven awaiting the resurrection. And the rest of us are here, and some of us are yet in the future. And he's building up, but it's, it's all for a purpose because there is going to be the consummation. The Lord is going to take possession And just to make it absolutely clear what he has in mind, he explains that he's not just going to be an absentee landlord, not someone who buys a piece of property, builds something, and then from afar uh, collects the rent on it. No, it's something different than that. Because in verse 10 it says, Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I am coming, and I will dwell in your midst, says the Lord. I will live with you. I will live in the house that I have built. I will be with my people. That's the consummation. That's the great picture that we have in in Revelation as he comes to live. The new Jerusalem fitted out as a a bride prepared for her husband coming down out of heaven. And Christ is going to marry that bride. And they're going to live together happily ever after. That is the situation which he says, he insists, will be the case. He will live with us. Now, wonderfully, even here in Zechariah 2, we have a reminder that God's plans for Zion, although we've been talking about Jerusalem, we've been talking about Zion and Judah and so forth, it's not just the ethnically Jews. As in verse 11, many nations shall be joined to the Lord in that day, and they shall become my people. And I will dwell in your midst, and you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And this is a nod, this is a reminder that the... The Great Commission was not the first time that the idea had ever come into the minds of God's people because God had been telling them about this for a long, long time, that he intended to bring other nations into the midst as well. And it is to his glory. He is too great a God to have just one nation, but rather every nation under heaven, he says, will be represented in heaven. Well, as we apply then, we, we transition to thinking of how we apply this great truth that the, the Lord has this concern for his inheritance. First of all, I guess the obvious and most straightforward one is you personally, that you ought to know that the Lord has a vested interest in your well-being. It, 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 he's not simply a, uh, some objective 
drill instructor who you happen to be a recruit going through his platoon and he has a job to instruct you and to teach you and and when you pass on and go to the next stage he doesn't even remember you that's not the situation the lord has a vested interest in you we tend to undervalue ourselves we do we overvalue ourselves in as much as we are in, uh, of ourselves and what we have done and in, in our pride and all the rest of it. But we undervalue ourselves in the sight of God. And we think, well, what difference does it make whether we're spiritually tip-top in wonderful condition or whether we're barely making it, clinging onto our fingernails, what difference does it make? Or, and we mean what difference does it make to us? Whether, and whether we're walking in, in righteousness and light or whether we're walling around like a pig in, in sin, what difference does it make? Well, I, I don't know why it doesn't make a difference to you. It ought to. But it certainly matters to God because you're his investment and he does not want you to ruin it. He has put a lot of money into you, more than any, um, anybody over there would blow their mind trying to calculate there at HSBC exactly what kind of investment the Lord God has put into each and every one of us. Nothing could possibly enumerate that, the precious shed blood of Christ and his broken body. And he cares. And his Holy Spirit is working, is striving with us day by day. His, his word is being fed. It is a precious word again. It is a, a word of great value, more than silver or gold, and it is being poured into us as if our whole diet is silver and gold and precious gems. And he intends for us to be the better of it, for it. We, he intends that we would become more and more like his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He cares. He's building us up. It matters to God. It matters to the Lord Jesus. He intends to present us spotless. He's accountable for us in our condition. He's not a, a bad shepherd. He's a good shepherd. And he's embarrassed. You know, imagine a good, proper shepherd. And, and, he's, and there's these scraggly-looking, dirty sheep there. You know, that's an embarrassment if, you, if you're a decent shepherd. You don't want that on your record. Jesus Christ is better than that. He, he doesn't want scraggly sheep. He wants well-fed sheep without disease who are, are blessed and, and growing in every way. That's what he wants. He wants us to be a fruitful vine. Remember, he is the vine. That is, that is him. That is his reputation. He matter. It matters to him. It matters. You know, that's the spirit, by the way, of 1 Corinthians 6.18. Flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body, or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? You don't just belong. Sorry. You may not care, but you don't belong to yourself anymore. Verse 20, For you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. We're bought with a price. The Lord has a vested interest in our well-being. Secondly, it's a reminder to pray for the nations. Again, that verse, Many nations will be joined to the Lord in that day, and they shall become my people. The Lord seems to care about those nations, and his church should care about them as well. We should care. In this church, we should pray for more nations. You know, one of the positive signs that I, uh, when I go to various churches, one of the positive signs that I take note of is when there are more than one kind of people there. 
You know, it is to the glory of the Church of Sheffield. They're not all that terribly large, but of the number of nations that are represented there because they all come and rejoice under the common gospel, under the one word of God, and it is a wonderful thing. Well, we pray that more nations, I'm thankful that we have a couple more nations now than what we used to, but we pray for many more here in this church. It's a sign of spiritual blessing. It is a microcosm of what God is doing throughout the world. And, of course, for church planting. You know, Hexham is a different sort of place than here. And we must, be, we must have a concern for those who are different than us. And in the future, throughout the north of England, there are various places that are different than us, but we have a concern for them. And, of course, likewise for other nations, quite, you know, literally other nations, Berlin, as we do. These tithes and offerings, you know where some of it's going? To the church in Berlin to support the minister and the work there. And we pray that God would, would do that, would gather these people, these Germans, which we in some sense may not have much in common. And a lot of us may not even speak their language, but yet that God has a concern for And we want them added as jewels to his crown, and, and therefore we seek those of other nations, and Sweden along with them. So we should pray for the nations. And thirdly, we should rejoice. Verse 10, sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I am coming and will dwell in your midst, says the Lord. This is an assurance. It's a promise. It's a comfort. And it is a present command with a future object. Do you you understand that? It's a present command with a future object. He says, right now, I want you to sing and rejoice. The consummation is coming. It's on its way. It's in the future. It's not here yet. But right now, I want you to sing and rejoice about it because I told you it's coming. Because that's the good news. When the Lord says, it's as good as done. His word, if anyone can say his word is his bond, it's certainly the Lord. The Lord can do absolutely anything that he wants. There's no limitation, as we found this morning, in his power. But once he has bound himself with his covenant promises, they will happen. The whole universe would as well cease to exist, fall out of existence, as for any one of his promises not to happen. And he said, I'm coming. Do we believe him? If so, then we ought to rejoice. Revelation twenty two twenty. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming quickly. Amen. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. And we must remind and encourage one another with these things, as that is what they are there for. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful to hear the good news that you care about your people, that you have a great concern for your own inheritance, for your own portion. And amazingly, surprise, the the inheritance, this thing that you value so greatly is us, we in your church. Lord, truly we are nothing in ourselves, but you have made us to be great. You have made us to be these gems and precious uh, stones and, and metal to be the material for your great and glorious and eternal temple. And Lord, we're thankful that you keep tabs on us. You keep accounts of us better than anyone, any accountant could do. And because you care for us, this is your treasure. And you protect us, Lord, as no device, no, no military, no police force could ever protect. You keep us And, Lord, we know that you will yourself 
um, come and live with us forever, that there will be a consummation, that this work of preparation and preservation will not go on forever, but, Lord, it comes to a joyous conclusion. And you command us to rejoice in how we pray that we would. And, Lord, that our days here would be spent in singing as we know that soon enough you will live with us forever. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.